Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, and today I have a guest host with me. Perry Metz was the general manager of WFIU and WTIU for more than 16 years, and he's been a host or co-host on numerous programs on these this radio and the, and the sister television station over the years. So he's joining me today, and this week we're going to be ta- talking about the state of American democracy. We have four terrific guests with us today. Jill Long Thompson is a former Indiana Congresswoman, Obama administration appointee, and a visiting professor at Indiana University. Paul Helmke is with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He's a professor of practice, and he's also the Civic Leaders Center director. Gerald Wright is professor in the IU Department of Political Science. And also joining us today is Roger Smith, Christopher H. Brown, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. You can join us on the show today by following us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. And you can also send us your questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So we're very happy to have all of you along. And I want to start with... uh, with our former Congresswoman, Jill Long Thompson. She represented the Fort Wayne area, and she has written a book called The Character of American Democracy, Preserving Our Past, Protecting Our Future. And that was kind of the, the um, that and the letter that was sent by Roger Smith and several other um, people who are really concerned about democracy. Those were the, the main um, they initiated our show today. And Jill, thanks for being here. And could you talk about why you wrote the book and, and what, what sort of prompted you to do that? Well, thank you for having me on the show. Ethics have always been important to me. When I was a member of Congress, I introduced legislation to increase the ethics provisions for members of Congress. And when I was the uh, at the Farm Credit Administration, where I served as board chair and CEO, I was able to get past um, provisions that strengthen our arm's length uh, responsibilities and requirements because we work, that is an independent regulator. Um, but what really motivated me was uh, watching President, former President Trump conduct business in ways that were undermining our democracy and teaching ethics for the O'Neill School and the Kelly School um, I was, uh, every day I could come up with a new example of how something was a threat to our democracy for discussion in my classes. Um, and in particular, I remember very early in the administration that um, the president's daughter was able to um, obtain copyrights for uh, trademarks um, in China announced on the same day that she and her husband had dinner with uh, the president of China um, here in the United States. And people looked at that as not ethical, but I saw it as undermining democracy because democracy itself is an ethical concept and the process by which we adopt, execute, and enforce policy and laws is as important as the policy and laws that, that get adopted. And If we don't have transparency, if um, there are conflicts of interest and so on and so forth, which we will will continue to talk about here today, that actually undermines our democracy. And it wasn't until um, the the president had, former president had been in office for several years that those in the public media were talking regularly about how what he was doing was a threat to democracy, but it should have been apparent um, at the very beginning of his administration. All right, thank you. And I want to turn now to Roger Smith, uh, Christopher H. Brown, Distinguished Professor of Political Science 
at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of the uh, experts on political, uh, on one of the political experts who signed a statement of concern recently about uh, elections and what's what's going on with democracy today. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Give us some background on that and what what is your main concern? Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, uh, my main concern, consistent uh, with Jill Thompson's uh, in her very fine new book, is uh, that American democracy is in danger today. Uh, democracy depends on a fundamental trust, trust in our leaders, trust in our fellow citizens, trust in our system of democratic elections. But that trust is endangered today not because our not perfect system has gotten worse. In fact, it's gotten a lot better over the last couple of decades with county and local officials more professional and fair than ever before. And they did an amazing job in the 2020 election conducting a successful election during a pandemic. Nonetheless, uh, their performance and American democracy has been attacked by the former president and his allies claiming falsely that the election is rigged. That raises lots of doubts in Americans' minds. And it's also led to a flood of state legislative efforts to uh, supposedly increase the integrity of American elections. But it's actually putting lots of new obstacles in the ways of Americans' opportunities to vote. And it's hard to trust a democratic system in which you cannot vote. Before I, I move on, I want to ask, how did this conversation get started about, about a letter, about having a, a hundred of you sign this letter? Uh, it was um, initiated uh, by uh, Lee Drutman, a foundation scholar uh, who has uh, studied Congress and American politics for many years. Uh, but he contacted a wide range of scholars and political scientists, uh, uh, including political scientists who have been writing about our concerns for American democracy. Uh, in my case, uh, when I was president of the American Political Science Association, I initiated a task force that explored many of the issues of what uh, is going wrong with um, American democracy. And so uh, Lee knew uh, that I shared his concerns. Uh, uh, frankly, many, many more scholars would have signed than we have time to, had time to collect names because uh, these concerns are very widely shared. All right. Gerald Wright is with the uh, IU Department of Political Science. And, and I wanted to get your take on uh, on these concerns that uh, Jill Long Thompson and Roger Smith have have shared, do you do you uh, concur? Do you share those concerns? Mm, I think you're muted. So I think we're we're having some difficulty with Paul Helmke, Why don't you go ahead? Yeah, I, 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 I've got a lot of concerns. I, I think, you know, a lot of us grow up and we, we take democracy and our system of government for granted. We assume it's, uh, it's gone through tough times in the past. It's going to uh, survive tough times now. But uh, it's something that it's going to take people paying attention. And uh, uh, I am concerned. I've, I've been in politics and government most of my life. I was a mayor of Fort Wayne for 12 years. I ran the the Brady Center to prevent gun violence. So I've, I've dealt with Congress. I've dealt with state legislatures. I've dealt with the local government. And my one sense has always been that even when things are being blocked, you turn to someplace else in our governmental system uh, for relief. But if we've got a dysfunctional Congress, which we do now because it's a it's minority rule, uh, the filibuster is, is stopping things from happening. Uh, uh, when you've got a court system that... Uh, uh, people seem to question uh, when you've got, uh, um, you know, we, we've got a president that, that, that's, that's pushing for things, but he's, he's a new president and the past president seems to think he's, he's still got some power when you've got state legislatures that are, are, uh, are doing some things, uh, as, as Professor Smith pointed out, that are, are suppressing the vote. Um, you, you know, what do we turn to? We turn to the ballot box, and if we don't have the ballot box, uh, to change these things, then uh, then we're going to have problems. Uh, one of my favorite quotes has always been one from President Kennedy, and he said, those who make 
uh, peaceful revolution impossible, make violent revolution inevitable. And uh, uh, I don't want to see a violent revolution in this country. We need to have a process for change that works through our existing institutions. But when, uh, when you've got a dysfunctional Congress court, uh, a hamstrung president, uh, vote suppressing legislatures, and a ballot box that uh, may or may not work, then we've got some challenges ahead of us. All right. And Professor Wright. Uh, yeah, I completely agree that I think that we're in a moment of crisis that certainly I've never seen in my career. I'm a co-author on, on a textbook, uh, the title of which is Keeping the Republic from the Ben Franklin uh, famous quote. <clears throat> and we always talk to the students about how they need to have an effort to keep the republic. But in fact, we're looking back on American democracy and for the longest time we thought it is solid. Nobody, it was hard to get students to, to take seriously the idea that, that uh, it could change in any fundamental way. And all of a sudden, uh, I think that the strategies of the Republican Party uh, have changed that, and they're they're quite frightening. I think they're frightening at, at two levels. Uh, one is that the leadership of the Republican Party has called our institutions into question, which leads an awful lot of the followers uh, within the Republican Party to not believe in our basic institutions. Uh, and I think particularly that's, that's been going on for a while, but it's particularly heightened uh, under uh, President Trump. Uh, and then the second is the reality of it. It's not just that people don't trust the system, uh, but as they don't trust the system, then if the efforts that uh, uh, we've described in the state legislature start taking hold, a lot of citizens might think, and I think will think, yeah, that's perfectly fine. We should suppress the vote. Uh, not everybody should vote. Uh, our side should win. And that's much more important than maintaining the institutions of democracy. So both in the, just the level of the citizenry's belief in the system and then read the dangers because of that to the system. I think I think we are at a precarious position in American politics, much more so than uh, we've ever been probably since the Civil War. Well, with that uh, that sort of um, troubling view as we start the show, I want to let you know that you can send us certainly uh, your questions or your comments, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at noon edition, I'm gonna turn it over to Perry Metz. Perry? Thanks, Bob. Uh, Professor Wright raises uh, the specter of a loss of faith in American institutions. Uh, Jill, I, I read that last week, the Public Religion Research Institute, a nonpartisan group, released a study that said 23% of Republicans believe that the United States government media and financial sector are all controlled by Satan worshiping pedophiles who run global child sex trafficking. Now, this is a basic tenet of the QAnon theory, but this is the first time I think we've seen uh, polling evidence that a substantial number of Republicans believe this. And I wonder how possible it is to uh, talk about character, ethics, values in democracy when we have such disagreement on the facts? I think information literacy plays a, a significant role in democracy. People need to know what are credible sources of information. And you mentioned um, this very concerning figure, the 23% who believe complete falsehoods and that is that is occurring at a time when the world has become much more complex with globalization and technology what we need to know to be informed voters and informed engaged citizens in the country um, is has expanded and become uh, much more complex when i first voted in 1972 it was important for me to understand the U.S. economy and a little bit about our um, foreign relationships, international relationships. But today, that is, uh, we, are, we are so globalized. And then we have all kinds of sources of information, many of which are completely bogus. And I think that in addition to increasing knowledge on the political process and what it means to live in a democracy. 
uh, we really need to address this issue of information literacy that people can be persuaded by uh, a website or a Twitter account and they don't even know the source. And then you, you compound that with hacking into systems by foreign adversaries. We do have significant challenges facing us and we have politicians who exploit those things for personal gain. So we do have our work cut out for us. And um, there really is no time to waste in addressing these myriad issues that all relate to uh, running a successful democracy that is run democratically. Well, then I have to ask, uh, what is, where do we start? Where do we build information literacy? Well, I, I think that we can use many of the institutions that we have, um, institutions of higher education, but this needs to begin K through 12. And I know that there will be pushback because there are people who prefer uh, that the public not have the truth because it benefits them politically. Uh, but I think we have to start uh, at, at um, in kindergarten, uh, what it means to find true information, accurate information. I, I have a lot of questions I'd like to ask myself, but I, I don't want to uh, ignore our listeners. Uh, Allison, one of them, uh, sent us a direct message saying, I think the Democratic Party has been too passive, and this has been a long time coming. You can't blame one party for the situation we are in now. Any reactions? I will uh, chime in. Uh, uh, some political scientists have really looked at this very carefully. Uh, Man and Ornstein wrote a book that it's going to get worse before it gets better or something like that. Uh, and they point out very, very clearly that most of the movement uh, in this anti-democratic, uh, more authoritarian direction is housed in the Republican Party. It's a matter of strategy of how do you uh, cobble together a coalition of the very, very wealthy. Uh, and I think the rising incredible inequality that we have is, in fact, coupled with uh, the uh, sort of politics of resentment uh, that the Trump uh, and increasingly Republican Party uh, has has fueled. And so the Democratic Party, both parties are pretty heterogeneous. The Democratic Party certainly more so. Uh, I think the Democratic Party hasn't known what to do in response to this because this is sort of a new move uh, within the party system. Uh, but it's not both parties. It's They're not equally to blame. Uh, an awful lot of what has happened and the changes and the threats to democracy are a direct result of the strategies of the Republican Party. If I can um, add to that, I don't disagree at all uh, that uh, uh, the blame is not equal and that the uh, push to make our systems less democratic is coming from the Republican side. At the same time, I think uh, that Democrats do have to acknowledge that uh, some of the distrust in our national leadership is traceable to the fact uh, that Democrats um, and uh, uh, academics and uh, uh, media voices often have not been sufficiently uh, uh, sensitive and responsive uh, to those Americans who do feel uh, threatened and displaced by uh, the economic transformations of globalization to which Jill Thompson referred um, and uh, uh, the cultural changes uh, that they see as uh, threatening to their ways of life. Now, there are some aspects of American traditional ways of life that simply should not be preserved, systems of uh, unjust inequality we have to combat, but uh, Democrats uh, could do a better job, as I think Joe Biden is now trying to do, of showing uh, that their concerns really are uh, for all Americans. That might help uh, rebuild some trust in our institutions. I'm one of the things. Oh, Paul, you're muted. Yeah, one one of the things that frustrates me is that we 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 are so quick to demonize the other side, and I I think that's one of the problems. I, and, uh, even if it's 25 percent of the Republicans that believe these uh, strange things, uh, there's only 25 percent of the American people that identify as Republicans now. So we're only talking about uh, you know maybe. 
five to eight percent of the American people. And we've always had a, a slice of the American people that believe some strange things. Uh, when I talk to Republicans, they'll 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 pick the most extreme uh, Democrat that they can find, whether it's an elected official or not, and say this is what Democrats stand for. And when I talk to Democrats, sometimes they'll pick the most extreme Republican, and they'll say that's what Republicans stand for. I think the American people are more complex than that. And, 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 and that's, we need to start trying to work with people as individuals. I think that's done best in the, in the local communities. Um, but it's, 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 it's going to be hard. It, it's, it's so we've nationalized so much of our politics that, uh, that you don't have these individual sort of uh, personalities and quirks and, and, and positives and negatives that, 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 that we used to have. So we, we need to try to find some way to go back and to say, you know, there are good Republicans, there are good Democrats. Uh, we can work together on this. We can uh, we can disagree on that. Um, but I, I think both sides see, you know, either deplorables or folks clinging to guns and religion um, or extremists that are, are out to attack the Capitol. We we need to try to find the common ground there, and and that's hard. And uh, you know that the Republican Party today is not the Republican Party that I grew up with. The Democratic Party has changed. The Republican Party has changed. They're they're constantly changing in terms of their coalitions and their makeup. But I think too much of the t- so much of the time, the general public and the general discussion treats it like it's always been that way. So folks get their their, their dander up when they when they sense that they're being attacked or ignored. Paul, I wanted to ask you. Um, you were uh, a Republican governor. Uh, mayor of Fort Wayne, correct? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was elected on the Republican ticket. Right, correct. And Joe was a, a Democrat congressman from the Fort Wayne area. And, you know, we've had Lee Hamilton on this show uh, a few times, too. And he talks about, you know, working across the aisle. I would assume that the two of you know each other, Jill, Jill Long Thompson and Paul Helmkian, and worked on on common uh, issues in the Fort Wayne area. Are, are we beyond that now? Can we get back to a place where there can be some compromise across the aisle. And what's it going to take to do that? And I'll, I'll ask, well, I'll, I'll ask Paul first and then Jill. Well, it's, I mean, it, you know, I mean, Jill and I got along great, I thought. Uh, you know, she was always very responsive to, to my concerns and in the city of Fort Wayne's concerns. And uh, uh, she helped fight for us uh, when we, we needed things. Uh, we didn't always agree on all the issues, but uh, I thought we were good allies. And you know, that's, that's what I hope we have more of. But uh, I think both parties lately seem to say, if you've worked with somebody across the aisle, uh, we're going to demonize you now. And, and, and that's the part that scares me. We have to figure out how, how to get together. Maybe we should just get rid of all these party labels altogether and just uh, start talking about issues and in, in, in individuals and personalities and character. Jill? I would say Paul is great and was great to work with and has remained a friend all these years later. I think that sometimes Democrats appear and Democratic leadership appears passive when in fact what the leadership is attempting to do is to find a solution in a way that upholds Democratic principles. Uh, Fairness of process, for example, transparency, um, equality of participation. Gerrymandering is a huge problem. And uh, there are some um, very good data that show how Republicans have been getting seat bonuses in the U.S. House. There have been some times when Democrats have also had seat bonuses. But the solution is not for the other side to gerrymander in a way that benefits the other party. It's to find a solution that works so that you don't get seats bonus, so that the, the vote totals reflect the representation in the U.S. House or in um, a state legislature. And um, we have an issue, I think, uh, we, I know we have an issue now with the Supreme Court, but there needs to be a serious discussion about how to resolve the issue with the imbalance and uh, the unwillingness of um, one party um, to hear, uh, to even hold um, hearings on uh, nominees of a president, as we saw with Mitch McConnell um, during the Obama presidency. Um, many say the, the solution is to a- increase the size of the Supreme Court, but the problem with that is statistically you could get in a much more challenging situation with a very extreme Supreme Court that's young and it would 
could take even longer um, to get it back in balance. So I, th I think it's important not to confuse um, deliberation and um, upholding of democratic principles with being passive. Uh, we want to make sure that the solutions are consistent with the values of democracy. I wanted to ask, I wanted to follow up about that. So in, in um, Jill's book, she talks uh, early on in the book about the six pillars from the Josephson Institute on Ethics, uh, trustworthiness, respect, responsibility, fairness, caring, and, and citizenship as being important parts of, of ethics and, and of character. And uh, Professor Wright, Professor Smith, uh, wanted to ask you about, you know, where do those those kind of pillars, this idea of of politicians of character, or con people in Congress, or people you know, people in the the House or the Senate, people of character, um, have we have we really lost the idea that you know you should be trustworthy, you should be responsible, you should be caring to be in um, you know in, in Congress in a position of power, or do the people who are in those positions believe they they are people of character. Professor Wright? Professor Smith, go ahead. I'm sure uh, people in Congress uh, see themselves as people of character, uh, but the unfortunate reality is uh, that we have a media environment and we have a funding environment uh, that makes it very difficult for people of character uh, to thrive in the current American uh, political system. Um, if you're uh, honest, uh, you're likely to set yourself up for uh, abuse when you say what you think. You can get pilloried from all sides on social media, and you have to spend a lot of time uh, trying to get money uh, to finance your campaigns. And so uh, that means uh, that the uh, temptations uh, to be uh, unduly influenced by the wealthy are uh, just pervasive. Uh, now, uh, Jill Thompson, when she was in Congress, recognized that we not only uh, need uh, to have uh, a greater moral sensibility, we actually need to have some rules uh, that um, uh, uh, control issues like um, uh, campaign financing in which the donors are not transparent, uh, a big issue right now uh, where uh, Republicans are pushing for laws saying uh, that you shouldn't have to reveal uh, who you're giving money to, and that's the way of masking the influence of money in uh, politics. Um, and in terms of the media, uh, uh, we have a First Amendment that means that uh, we have strong free speech commitments. I hope uh, that the media will take more responsibility for self-regulating as they're uh, doing uh, to uh, prevent people from being uh, massively assailed for just telling the truth in politics. Uh, but um, uh, if that doesn't happen, uh, we may need uh, to adopt some new uh, policies uh, that uh, make it um, easier for people of character to uh, be in politics uh, without uh, feeling uh, that their lives uh, have been ruined. Uh, uh, and let me add just one thing. We also have a lot of new laws that are going to try to subject election officials uh, for to uh, fines and even criminal penalties. Um, and about a quarter of the nation's election uh, officials are saying they're considering leaving uh, because uh, we're making it impossible uh, for them to do their jobs after they've done some of the best jobs in the history of American elections. Professor Wright. Uh, yeah, I think uh, the, another element that's underlying all of this, and it's an element that's been almost an obsession uh, in the political science community, and that's uh, party polarization. Uh, since the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the parties have pulled further and further apart, uh, with liberals consistently being in the de Democratic Party, conservatives in the Republican Party, uh, and moderates sort of left out uh, among the mass public. Uh, sort of becoming independents, but among uh, elected officials, there's almost no moderates left. And it was those moderates uh, that for a long time allowed bipartisanship and the kind of brokering that is essential uh, in our political system. But now 
with so many members of Congress having safe districts, uh, their political lives, particularly in the Republican Party, they feel uh, <clears throat> rest in surviving a primary challenge. They're not going to be beat in a general election except for in a handful of districts. But the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats are in safe districts. Uh, and so they they win election. People kind of people who get elected are those who are more ideologically extreme and more ideologically strident. Uh, and so they don't get primaried by the extremists within their parties. Uh, and how we overcome that and undo it is, is one of the big puzzles uh, that I and my other people who study, my colleagues who study American politics are puzzling with now. And right now we don't have answers. It's, an, it's so interesting here in Indiana because I think, you know, our state witnessed that. Um, I don't know what year it was that Richard Luger lost in a primary to someone who just seemed to suit the uh, the farther right wing of the Republican Party better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we lost Richard Luger, who was a, a moderate and well-connected and had done so many good things. And then the Republicans lost the seat because uh, Mr. Murdoch couldn't win the general election. Let me give our numbers again, or our, our contact information again, and, and tell you that we're uh, talking about character in government with Jill Long Thompson, former Indiana Congresswoman, Obama administration appointee and a visiting professor at IU, Paul Helmke of the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU, a professor of practice, Gerald Wright, a professor in the IU Department of Political Science, and Roger S- Smith, who is a distinguished professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And you can join us on Twitter, follow us on Twitter and send us questions there at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And my co-host today is Perry Metz. Perry? Thanks, Bob. I'd like to return to the question of party polarization. Uh, It it, uh, seems to me that... uh, as the parties have polarized, so have the media outlets. And my question is, do you think one has caused the other? Uh, The rise of Roger Ailes' design for Fox News as a voice for American conservatives uh, has led to a, a host of media outlets, almost all of which present themselves as news organizations but in many cases on both sides of the spectrum are really uh, advocating a point of view. Which do you think came first, the the party polarization or the media polarization? That's a good chicken and egg question. (laughs) Uh, Certainly, uh, I think we have enough research in in political science and communication to show that the polarization that we have has been greatly exacerbated, particularly by Fox News. Uh, that gives a home for people who, who want to hear a particular point of view. Uh, and so that's certainly exacerbated that. And the, the world, the people who watch the mainstream media uh, and those who watch Fox News are actually looking at and hearing about different worlds. And so their facts are different, uh, which makes our politics uh, and the possibility of agreement all that much more difficult. So I'd say the media is certainly a contributing factor. I don't know if I would say it's, it's it was the cause. I think that the, the roots of polarization go back to the civil rights movement and party strategies uh, for both the Democrats and Republicans uh, that they incrementally adopted over the last 40 years about how they try to win elections. And they've just grown further apart uh, in terms of policy positions. And then the media, I think, has taken advantage of that and saw, oh, there's an audience uh, and has exacerbated it. You raised well, the question. Great. Of, go ahead, please. Well, uh, just a footnote to that, uh, which is, uh, that uh, political scientists have found uh, that the concern uh, that people are in media echo chambers now and only hearing uh, from uh, people on the same side is somewhat exaggerated, uh, that most people actually are exposed to multiple media sources. But ironically, it's the most politically engaged, the most politically active that tend to listen only to the media uh, that uh, reinforces their existing views and often makes them more extreme. So some of our most politically active and informed uh, Americans are unfortunately also some of our most ideologically polarized ones. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and, and, and I, I, I think this... Oh, this go ahead. I'm sorry, Mayor. 
Go ahead. Go, go ahead, Jill. Well, this is, I think, also related to how the, the uh, how media have become more complex in terms of uh, what options you have for getting information uh, with cable or satellite service, for example, um, you buy uh, whatever channels you're you're going to watch and listen to, which is and the rules are different for a news program that is a cable news program versus a broadcast news program. And they're more strict for broadcast news because it's broadcast and it's going to the public at large. And I think that this uh, my the issue that I raised earlier regarding information literacy. Uh, many people don't know that there is a, a difference in terms of how those are regulated, and people don't even necessarily know where to go for information. And it, it goes back to from a, a very early age. Uh, people need to be exposed to uh, how um, how information is being disseminated and what the sources are and what are the strengths and weaknesses of various sources of information. Journalists, professional journalists, have a very strict code of ethics, uh, but that doesn't apply to um, to cable or or satellite um, news channels. I was going to say, I, I, I think this all points out that the, the challenge really is getting in touch with the, the folks on the ground. Um, um, you know, to, for Democrats, uh, you know, one of the things I've been reading lately is, you know, the, the, the universe is not what you hear on Twitter. It's, it, it, there's a lot of other people out there. You, and, uh, and I think the challenge for political parties, for candidates, is talk to as many people on the ground locally as you can. There was a a Republican senator on one of the national news shows recently, a Republican U.S. senator, who um, who felt that uh, you know Trump did lose the election, and uh, when he was asked, you know, how do you handle constituents uh, that disagree with you, and he said, well, he explains to them what's happening, how Rudy Giuliani, uh, uh, you know, admitted in court that there was no fraud, and that uh, uh, some of the other lawyers admitted that uh, they were just sort of making this up. Uh, we we need to to talk to people on the ground. And I, I think too much of the time parties, candidates think we've got to do this just through media. We've got to do this just through social media. We just have to do this through traditional media. We just have to raise money. Uh, I, I think knocking on doors, uh, meeting people uh, where they live, where, where, where they work. Um, it, it's the old fashioned way of doing things and it's not easy, but I, I think that's what we have to do to turn it around. And if you, you know, the, the number of people that don't vote every year, uh, are always enough to switch almost every election, whether the, the, the district's gerrymandered or not, whether there's vote suppression or not. If you can get more people out to vote on election day, if that's the only day, then uh, then we can turn things around. Harry, do you have a follow-up to that? I was wondering, uh, the, the question of gerrymandering uh, is is central in our minds uh, every 10 years when uh, districts are, are redrawn based on the census. But typically the party in power uh, in, a, in each state is reluctant, if not completely unwilling, to turn it over to a nonpartisan commission. Uh, how, how much of an effect uh, or difference do you think there would be uh, if nationally uh, that decision were made to uh, have districts drawn in an, in an impartial fashion. The, um, the data that we have suggested can make a lot, a lot of difference. There's a, a few states which are, first of all, it's really hard to get a genuinely nonpartisan commission because even those who have independent commissions, half are picked by the Democrats, half by the Republicans, the, uh, and then that committee picks somebody and that person's a Democrat or Republican. And those decisions tend to be still parts, pretty partisan in their politics. Others uh, that have really gone with a lot of regulations to try to make a pretty independent commission like Iowa uh, has done, uh, the districts became much more competitive. I don't think it decreased polarization uh, among the people that are nominated at Iowa, but the, certainly the elections are more competitive. And we do know gerrymandering works. I mean, if you can, can draw the lines uh, with 50% of the vote, you can get 60 or 70% of the seats. 
Uh, and even with the minority of the vote, like what's happening in Pennsylvania, that you can get a majority of, of the seats. So the interesting thing is that the Supreme Court says the partisan gerrymandering is something they're going to leave to the states. And I think the current Supreme Court seems very unlikely to change it, uh, which brings us back to, to the legislation in, in the Senate now uh, about whether or not they'll be able to pack, in fact, pass the National Voting Rights uh, Bill of, of one of the sorts that are there now, uh, which would be very important if they can do it very important for Democrats uh, because the Republicans uh, have a majority in a majority of the states uh, and they, if left on un, unencumbered, uh, they'll be able to ger gerrymander the, uh, the seats again, uh, which will lock in uh, Republican control, even if they have a minority of votes for at least several election cycles. Professor Wright, you mentioned the commission commissions and now sometimes they, they aren't exactly nonpartisan either, but uh, the commission to look into what happened at the Capitol on January 6th uh, what, did not make it through the Senate. And I guess I wanted to get uh, your reaction, any of you and all of you, to what, a what that commission represented and whether uh, that could have helped bring more character back to um to our, our political system. Jill, I'll start with you. Well, we, we're humans and we are not perfectly unbiased as humans. I um, think back to a study that I came across years ago when I was a doctoral student at IU. And there were, as an experimental group and a control group, they had no opinion on a topic. They were given the same information to read. And um, one group was given Pepsi and peanuts to eat while they read the information. The other group got nothing to eat or drink. And the group that uh, had the Pepsi and peanuts were more likely to adopt uh, the position um, espoused in uh, the material that they were reading. We, we can't be perfectly unbiased because we have our biases. If peanuts and Pepsi can make me more agreeable and more likely to uh, agree with uh, someone's position, um, it, we're, we're pretty easily influenced. And this goes back to the need for processes that protect uh, democracy. And we, can, we, we need to change uh, the way congressional districts are drawn. They won't be perfect, uh, but they can be much better designed to reflect the will of the people. And that is a, a fundamental democratic principle. That's why process is so important. Um, in a, a democratic society. All right. Paul? The, uh, you know, the, the two points I, I want to make. One is that even when you look at something that's not gerrymandered, uh, the, uh, our states, I mean, uh, the, the state U.S. Senate races, uh, we're a closely divided country. So regardless of how you cut it, it, it it's going to be close. But in a closely divided country, again, getting more people to vote can make a difference. No one expected uh, the Democrats to win both of the Georgia special uh, U.S. Senate races uh, on January 5, the day before the uh, uh, insurrection at uh, uh, the Capitol. So it, its turnout does make a big difference. The other thing is the courts make a difference. Um, you know, the, it, it's the U.S. Supreme Court that, uh, that decided not to, to deal with partisan gerrymandering. It's the U.S. Supreme Court that... Uh, that uh, ruled uh, that that's, that uh, money was uh, corporate money was speech in the Citizens United case. It was the U.S. Supreme Court in the Shelby Counter versus Holder case that basically said it didn't matter that Congress uh, felt that uh, some states uh, were trying to suppress the vote. They unilaterally said that that was old news. So we we need to be involved with uh, every part of our democracy, with our courts, with our elections, with our uh, with, with the way we draw districts, with uh, with, with what, what information people are getting. Uh, I, I still have confidence in our system, but it's going to take people talking to other people. Our parties are changing. We're, we're seeing uh, suburban uh, women uh, now uh, voting more uh, 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 Democratic than Republican. Uh, Carmel, uh, the city of Carmel, one of the most Republican in the state for years, uh, went for um, went for Biden uh, last time. It, it's, uh, you know, things can change, but it, 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 it takes us having people get involved and in pushing at, at every level, at every uh, every area where they can. Okay, thank you. I uh, wanted to go to ask uh, Roger Smith to, to, and uh, Gerald Wright to make a comment on, 
on this commission that failed to to look at the um, at the insurrection and to just study the insurrection would that have made a significant difference if if a commission had been appointed to do that? I'd say, yeah. uh, thank you. Uh, I'd say it might well have, although we can't know exactly what it would have found out about the failures uh, to protect the Capitol uh, when there was plenty of information uh, suggesting that danger was at hand. Uh, I'd also note that in many other countries, uh, we've had truth and reconciliation commissions uh, that have had a mixed record, but that have often uh, really uh, helped promote shared understandings of where the country has gone wrong, uh, that have helped countries to try to do better. We had an opportunity to do that here. Uh, we're not going to have that happen. <clears throat> it does reinforce, as does the gerrymandering question, uh, something that um, motivated the letter I was part of, uh, the belief that um, we really do need now uh, to uh, drop the filibuster rule that is making for, uh, in effect, minority rule in this country. We could get Senate one, which would create uh, national nonpartisan districting commissions. We could have gotten uh, this commission to investigate uh, the January 6th attack, and uh, uh, we uh, failed to do so uh, because the Senate operates too undemocratically. Um, that's in some ways been a nice tradition, but it's something we've got to change. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Oh, well, on, on, the, uh, on the commission, the presidential commission, uh, I think the party's reaction suggested it probably wouldn't have the kind of eye-opening, uh, clear-in-the-air effect that, that uh, we would like. The Republicans feel very defensive about it and voted it down. Uh, they clearly think that any kind of news that comes out of that is going to reflect unfavorably on the party and particularly uh, the former president. Uh, and Democrats would... Uh, undoubtedly in this highly polarized age, uh, jump on any crumbs of evidence of uh, wrongdoing or suspiciousness on, on the part of the Republican Party. And so I, I think it would it would get lost very uh, much uh, like the impeachment hearings. The partisans heard the evidence uh, that they wanted. Uh, and even though there was an awful lot of evidence presented, it didn't change uh, very many minds. And I think that's just uh, one of the maladies of our deep, deep polarization that we have. So I I think it would have been good to have that that uh, commission uh, because the the attacks on the Capitol are so disturbing. Uh, but I think the practical effect probably would not have been to change very many people's minds on it. And I, I agree. I think we should have had the commission, but uh, I also agree it probably would have uh, been ignored or, or questioned by a lot of people. I mean, historically, people questioned the Warren Commission after their results. Uh, people ignored the Kerner Commission after the the, the, the riots in the '60s. Uh, sometimes these uh, work, but sometimes they don't. There are ways that we can still get this information out. I think uh, uh, committees can still investigate this. Uh, you can have some hearings. You can call some witnesses. Uh, I don't think it should be dropped. I think it's an important thing to look at. But uh, uh, this idea that you were going to have a commission that was going to satisfy everyone, uh, that, that, that's unrealistic. But there's an important question about process here. Uh, how would you contrast the attitude toward establishing a commission to look into the January 6th insurrection versus the bipartisan attitude toward establishing a Watergate Select Committee? It, it's a reflection of the difference in the errors. That was a uh, an awful lot of more uh, bipartisanship and cross-partying. You had a Southern coalition, conservative Democrats, uh, a lot of the concerns were in the Democratic Party then, so we were not nearly as ideologically split. Uh, and even though we in the Watergate Commission, the Republicans tended to stick with Nixon, there was a lot of crossover. Uh, now the parties are so purified, really, uh, and ideologically, uh, that we're really dealing with a very different kind of, of set of decision makers on this, a set that's very reluctant uh, to work with the other side and to compromise. Few that do it are pretty courageous, um, but then they get threatened uh, for a primary in many cases. It, 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 and, we, and, we are in a different era. 
And again, with, with, with Watergate, I don't think it was really a separate commission. The Watergate hearings were hearings from House Judiciary Committee, Senate Judiciary Committee looking into these things. I just think we should note that the Watergate break-in was 49 years ago yesterday. So it's uh, uh, ho- hopefully we've learned something from, uh, from the past. We only have well, about- I'm not sure we haven't gotten worse, though, underlining Jill Thompson's concern with character. Uh, one of the big difference from uh, Watergate, uh, as Gerald Wright touched on, is that a number of Republican leaders uh, uh, did stand up eventually and say Nixon is just wrong. He's committed a crime. And we just don't have very many Republican leaders saying that the election was not stolen and that President Trump is lying. Right. right. And, and the one thing, too, I mean, Nixon, for all his faults, uh, once uh, once he saw the writing on the wall, he, he felt that the best thing to do was to resign. I'm not sure that uh, our former president uh, would have uh, done that if he'd been in that uh, situation. We have one minute to go. I'm going to give Jill Thompson, Jill Long Thompson, the last minute to talk about uh, in- solutions that you'd like to, to suggest from your research on the book and and what you've written. Um what would you like to see happen in the next, um, you know, year or so? Well, um, a number of things from the book. One is I do think the president and vice president should be held to the same um, standard as other executive branch employees. The 14 um, principles of ethical behavior that apply to other executive branch employees do not uh, apply to the uh, president and vice president, and then um, 18 U.S.C. section 208, um, where it it is um, a crime for any U.S. government official in the executive branch to participate in a government matter that has a direct or indirect effect on that government official's financial interest would be a crime. I think that law needs to be changed. I think many of the provisions in H.R. 1 need to be enacted. Uh, if, If HR1 cannot get through the Senate um, in its in its form uh, if even some of the provisions like changing the way congressional district lines are drawn, getting rid of dark money. Um, I, I think those things need to happen. Uh, I also think information literacy is something that needs to be addressed right away in this country uh, so that people know where to go for good information. And um, since we're wrapping up, I could say read the character of American democracy, the, the royalties, I have directed all of them to go directly to Indiana University, so I'm not making any money on this book. Um, Indiana University, like universities across the country, uh, changed the lives of young people, changed my life and the trajectory of my career. And um, democracy is a very important um, uh, part of who we are, and it is an ethical way to govern and I'm going to have to cut you off there. I, I think we, I think we get it. And I appreciate <laughs> your being here. No, I'm thank you so much for being here. Gerald Long Thompson, Paul Helmke, thank Gerald you. Wright and Roger Smith uh, for our producer, Benta Boutier, co-host Perry Metz, engineer, John Bailey. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to noon edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information.